Amen. As we uh, prepare for the offering here, you know, I was looking back at that same scripture through the, the lens of, of sacrifice, you know, and it's really interesting um, thinking about it this way. In, in Colossians 1, uh, Colossians 1, 14, it says, Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. You know, in, in thinking about, you know, when we give, it's, it's really not because we're indebted. It's because it's something that, that comes from our hearts. It, it truly is an offering, whereas it, it wouldn't be if it was something that was, that was owed, that was, that was a debt. Um, so think about that as, as you uh, make an offering today. Father in heaven, uh, we come before you again, humbled God. I uh, just pray that you, you bless this offering, God, that we provide. It's, um, it's, it's uh, God, earned by, by earn, work that you bless us with, God, abilities that you gave us. God, it, it, it all comes from you anyways, God, and this is just a, uh, a small way of us giving back to you, God, you've already um, blessed us so abundantly with, God, and again, not because, you know, you see us as owing you, uh, God, or, or being in debt to you, God, but because uh, you love us, God, and, and you give us this, this freedom to express our, our love back to you. Uh, Father, I, I thank you again for our, our service today, and, and uh, bless the rest of it. Thank you. When you can, please stand and join us.
Come on, thank you, singers. Thank you, band. Mike Jones has got a little bit of hillbilly white soul inside of him, I guess. Huh? That's, a, that's a versatile man there. And happy St. Patty's Day! I know I don't have any green on, I'm sorry. I should have tried. But anyway, for me, it's, um, you know, I, it's, it, it is St. Patty's Day, but to me, it's St. Eddie's Day. And I don't get often to have this landing on a, on a Sunday, but it's the, the, the day on which I was reborn, the day on which I was made a saint. So, amen. So March 17th is, is always pretty sweet to me, and it's a, a day to be able to reflect. Even communion today was just so especially moving, uh, just remembering back 26 years ago and what, what it was that Jesus had to do so that this could be such a kind of a mark on the calendar of, of such import. So anyway, we, we, we have, oh my goodness, what a Jesus we have. Praise God. This is our life. And today we're going to look at Jesus at the well with the woman. And I don't know if we can switch over at some point or hit play. Uh-oh. You, you cannot? We'll give it a sec. Is it locked by any chance? What you got? This is joyful. Oh, maybe we're not going to be on the street. Oh, well, fair enough. Any, anyway, uh, so we're in John 4. We got a lot to read today. We're going to read 45 verses. And that's, that's not normally what we uh, cover. Usually we're somewhere in that 10 to 12 sweet spot range. So, yes, this will be, this will be a bit more. And, uh, again, with, with that up, all you should do is just hit play and it'll come on. Okay. Well, fair enough. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, so, in, um, in John 4, Jesus is going to encounter a Samaritan woman. And they're going to have a particularly insightful conversation that will result in something really spectacular by the end of the story. It is a familiar story to us, but it was not a familiar story to me when I was in college. And I went to college... In Philadelphia, I went to University of Pennsylvania, and just outside of Penn's campus was the Schuylkill River. Uh, right, right next to the Schuylkill River was the art museum, you know, the steps that Rocky ran up and down. But then around the bend from that was Boathouse Row. And maybe some of you have seen photos of Boathouse Row along the Schuylkill River, and right behind Boathouse Row was a, was a road that we used to run down because I was on the crew team, and I lived you know, most of my freshman year in that boathouse at University of Pennsylvania's boathouse, and, and it was Kelly Drive right behind there. And, and uh, you know, for me, that little spot really did exemplify what I had hoped would be me finally being delivered. Me finally having all that I that I hoped I would I would have, yeah. Amen. We're, we're if you can go to the first slide, that would be great. There we go. Um, and 
Thank you. And as, um, as I reflect back on that time, I realize how desperate I was. I was a, a lower middle class kid from a single mom immigrant, and I desperately wanted to be a ladder climber, a social climber. I wanted out of all of that, but I really wanted out of all of that. I wanted to be a captain of industry, breaking into the upper echelons of society, creating multi-generational wealth and security, having a claim and, and, and really access uh, to, to all of those corridors. That I, and, and I'm thinking, all right, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm in the Ivy League. I'm, I'm not just in the Ivy League, but now I'm in a boat with a bunch of prep school kids that could only, you know, not many public schools where, where I grew up had, had a rowing team, right? So, so these were like the, the, the kids of the elite and I'm kind of hobnobbing with them. And, and interestingly, you know, I was a walk-on to the team, so I was trying to prove myself. And, and one of the small ways that it seemed that I was able to kind of hang with the rest of the team and, and maybe even do better in some cases was running hills. We, we had this hill right behind the boathouse. And as I would run that hill, it would seem to be something that for, for some reason I could do rather readily. And other people would kind of look at me and say, hey, you know, you're doing all right. Good job. The coach was giving me a claim for, for kind of you know, excelling in this one, one particular thing, which was a big part of our training. And, and through it all, I was thinking, yes, this is going to be it. I'm going to be somebody. I'm going to arrive. I'm going to be made complete. I'm going to uh, really be the person that I was in the depth of my soul always meant to be. And, and the one thing that, that I, I didn't appreciate so much at the time is when I would run up to the top of this hill. At the top of the hill was a spring that fed down into the Schuylkill River. And at that spring, there was a covering made years earlier by some sort of city office to be able to kind of protect the well and, and allow it to, to flow down. And what was interesting is, is I'm in the midst of all of this wanting to be delivered activity. There at the, at the top of this hill that I would run so effectively was an inscription. And there the inscription read... Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. It was more profound than I could have ever understood. And for whatever reason, the city of Philadelphia decided to quote from John chapter 4, specifically verse 13, that we'll read in a minute. But it couldn't have been more true of me. The more that I wanted to drink of that water, of that recognition, of that deliverance, the more that I realized I'm only going to thirst again. No matter how much I strived after all of that ultimate atonement and deliverance and, and security and salvation that, that I perceived, the more that I came away thirsting more than I could have ever known. And more frustrated that even that didn't quench my thirst again and again. Let's read this story. In John 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong spot. Um, oh, yes. Verse 4. Now he had gone through Samaria, and so he came to a town in Samaria called Sikar, or Sukar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he is, was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, he said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And I know at different times we've, we've seen this passage. It's not an unfamiliar passage to, to many people who only have a cursory familiarity with the Bible. But of course, the thing that would be mind-blowing then is that a man would be speaking to a woman in that setting. Uh, without other people present, it, was, it would always have been a time where you were making sure that nothing that would seem like impropriety could ever be the case. And for certain, an intimate back and forth chat between a man and a woman, much less a rabbi and a woman, much less a rabbi and a half-breed Samaritan woman, which is how the Jews viewed the Samaritans. Uh, earlier, they were the product of compromise of the northern tribes of Israel, and they had become half-breeds and full compromisers with the, the pagan nations. And so while they still held on to the Bible, they held really only to the first five books of the Bible. And one of the reasons that they held to the first five books of the Bible is that nowhere in that section of the Old Testament did it say where you needed to worship. There's no place given for where the temple needed to be established. And there was a, a hill of quite importance in the Old Testament that was a place of many miracles, but also a place of great blessing. And that hill was called Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was the place where Moses stood and read the law to the people. And in reading the law, you go to Mount Gerizim to pronounce the blessings upon the people. And so that was in Samaria. And so the Samaritans, of course, embraced that idea and thought maybe this is the special mountain where the temple of the Lord shall be. Jesus sitting where he is at Jacob's well would have had in view that that very mountain as he and the woman talked. He also would have obviously recognized where he was, that he was in compromiser territory and in a place that all of his buddies would have thought, this is cootie land. Let's get out of here as quick as we can. Also, there's something perhaps... We don't know this for sure. There's something perhaps a bit odd about this woman that she's coming out to draw water at an inopportune time, noon, when in fact it would have been much more the regular practice to, to do it beginning of the day or end of the day, but not in the heat of the day to engage in such a labor as this. And people have kind of bannied that back and forth. We're not really sure, but it does seem to speak to the idea that there may have been something about her that didn't uh, endear her to the other women that would have been coming out to draw water. And maybe over time she realized, maybe I better just kind of do my water drawing away from the ridicule of the other women that would normally come out. And we'll, we'll find out about that in just a moment. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Because right before that, Jesus had said, would you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Jesus answered her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, to our ears, living water sounds quite metaphysical. 
And yet, to, to their ears, it just meant moving water, which translated means clean water. Uh, still water or stagnant water does not equal clean water in an ancient age where it's, we don't have the advantages of clean water as we have today. So he, w- he was talking about water that really nourishes the soul, living water, moving water that you can bet is like a stream which would have been much cleaner in, in their mind. But Jesus, as he often does, uses kind of double entendres, meaning that he's, he's talking about both, really, and she's going to have to kind of catch up to him. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Like the inscription. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I think she's catching on that this living water now has got more to it than she's appreciating. The woman said to him, hey, give me that indoor plumbing. I want a Delta faucet. So whenever I can, I'll just... You know, it would be good to have a touchless one, you know, in case I have a big pot with water. But, you know, nonetheless, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll turn the knob. Uh, give me that, that water. Hey, get, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go. Call your husband and come back. Most people would think, why such a non sequitur right here? Is that a bit random, Jesus? She's, she says... Sir, the water. Let's do this thing. I want that water so that I won't get thirsty again. Now appreciate when and where Jesus decides to insert this. It's at this moment. This moment of what it is that will quench your thirst. What it is that, that really will be the living water that sustains you. It's at this moment. Not at a random moment. At this moment that Jesus then begins to expose her real need and says to her, go call your husband. She replies, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. So the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. And since you're a prophet, you know, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. How about instead of talking about me, we talk about theological matters, we can have a bit of a doctrinal debate, and uh, look over here, look over here, not at me. Right? I think that's what's going on. I can see you're a prophet. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Let me just pause there for one second. When Jesus says the time is coming, he uses the phrase, and we saw this back in John 2, when Jesus says this to his mother, my hour has not yet come. That's the phrase that he's using here as well. The hour, the hour is coming. It has not yet come. The hour is coming. He uses it many times, dozen times in the gospel of John. Uh, in, in chapter 5, chapter 16, chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 8. Uh, again and again, the, the hour is the hour of his sacrifice. The hour of when he pours himself out like water for us. That's the hour that he's referring to. Why it is that one day neither Samaritan nor Jew nor anyone else is going to be worried about Gerizim or Jerusalem because there's going to be something that suddenly makes it all clear. It makes such greater sense of all of this. And then he goes on to say. That the true worshipers will worship the father at that hour in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Now, this is a bombshell because think about all of the other gospels, all of the other interactions, all of the other gospel accounts. This is the first person to whom Jesus reveals the ultimate truth. This woman of all women, of all people. And he says to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Or I am. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Couldn't this be the Messiah? They came out of the town, made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. It's interesting, we were just talking about drinking a moment ago and now, and now eating, thirsting and hungering. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Again, they're having to keep up with Jesus, as did the woman need to keep up with Jesus about what this water really is and what this food really is. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's four more months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Again, the, the one that's kind of tilling the soil and planting the seed and not seeing any fruitful work from it is rejoicing at the very same time as the one that is gathering in the sheaves. We will go rejoicing, gathering in the sheaves, Psalm 126. That, that Jesus is saying, that, that moment in time that you've longed for and looked forward to, Amos 9.13, Psalm 126, the, the, the culmination of all blessings of God, when both the sower and the reaper are astounded by the provision of God, that they're rejoicing together. 
That's happening now. And you get to be part of it. Even now, the one who reaps a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I tell you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefit of their labor. In other words, some people have done some ground-tilling work uh, that's uh, rather difficult. And, and it was some difficult soil to work through. Pickaxe-type soil to, to get turned over, and they've done it. And now you get to go and help them to know the full harvest of what awaits them. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Wow, what a... What an interaction with Jesus. What a final impact of this interaction with Jesus. And what insight that we gain from Jesus for our human condition. And what it is that we, we really long to have satisfied. And so my first point, I have two points today. My first one is, quench your thirst. Please, quench your thirst. I've already shared a bit about the emptiness of my efforts to, to quench my thirst, to find my salvation, to find my deliverance, to find my place in the world, to find the place where I'm made complete. And for Jesus, the quenching of the thirst here for this woman has everything to do with the men in her life. It's why when she says, I want the water, I want the water, that he could say to her, go call your husband. Because he'd then be able to have as another visual. And Jesus is so good at these visuals. He's doing it all through the story with the water, the living water. And, and, and now imagine her then bringing her husband or this man that, that is her lover at this moment. Uh, and, and for him to say, this is not the living water. This is not what was meant to satisfy you. You were meant for so much more. Do not, do not just simply compromise it and think that this is deliverance just because myopically short term that this seems to be the deliverance for which you seek. You know, this idea of romanticism replacing the aching of our soul. It's all over every movie that we see. The, the seeking heart in, in all of our movies that are really defining our age are always about love. But interestingly, none of those movies is really about connecting to the love of God. And so it's almost like as a substitute, since we're not going to make a movie about God, what in the world? We're Hollywood. We're, instead, let's have a stand-in 
for what it is that the heart yearns. And that stand-in has become romance in all of its variations. It's the idea that there's one true love out there. Your buttercup waiting to complete you. And if we find that true love, everything in our life will finally fall into place. Finally. If I can just find that, that, then everything in my life is finally going to begin to work out. And it is interesting that when, you know, you first start to fall in love, you start using cosmic language, don't you? Well, I will love you forever. I'll love you to the moon and back. I'll love you longer than the stars are in the sky. And, and there is a, a deep aching and, and it is associated with love. But the frightening thing is, is that there are plenty of problems with putting that kind of significance on that humanity. It can bring devastation, blindsiding us. For example, if you move into a relationship with that as the paradigm, and you put all of the spiritual freight of your life onto that person, you put that pressure on the relationship, that pressure on the loved one to make everything right in you, you put a pressure that they cannot bear. Just cannot bear it. And then you have a conflict. And what happens? You freak out. My one true love. My happily ever after. It, it wasn't meant to ever have a, a ripple or a wrinkle at this moment. Whoa, what is going on? Everything I thought would be made right. If it was true love, we shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be like this. He shouldn't be like this. It should be right. You're always supposed to be affirming me. You're supposed to be making everything right in my life. So what the toilet seats up? But you don't say it out loud. Because you know you'd sound like an idiot. But it is how you feel. And then quietly, with that quiet reservation, you begin to think, well, if, if this is so devastating, then maybe he's not Mr. Right. And what a frightening thought. And again, you don't say it out loud. Because it would just be too awful an idea. But you harbor it. And, and the reason that you harbor it is because you're putting on him or putting on her what they were never meant to bear. And so this woman has, in a vivid contrast before her, Jesus, the living water. And that why don't you bring your husband over here? And let's make a little bit of a comparison. Now let's see how that really does pan itself out. And it's such a vivid contrast 
uh, for, for, for any of us. And again, in, in any of these things where we put our stock and suddenly it's not going the way we want, and you think, but you're not supposed to be so needy. You're not supposed to have things that cause pet peeves inside of me. It doesn't go down in that way, in the way that I play it out. But everything that you're playing out can only be resolved with something that transcends anything physical, anything human. It has to be way beyond any of that. And ultimately, she'll learn, as we all need to learn, that it's so far beyond that, and it is, in fact, nothing less than, than Christ himself. There's an interesting book. It was, I think it won the Pulitzer Prize in the early 70s, and it was um, by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death. And he made some really interesting insights. And he, he, he looked at this rise of romanticism, this rise of the romantic comedy even, of, of being a stand-in for, for what it is that we uh, really yearn. And he says, after all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our creation has not been in vain. And needless to say, he writes insightfully, not, not a Christian book, by the way, but, but writes insightfully, human partners can't do this. It goes on to say that this rise of, of this concept comes because God has faded from our society. We're looking for romantic love is just something to justify us, make us feel sure of ourselves, give us meaning, connect our heart to the universe. Yeah, it's, it is what we want. Think of, of love song after love song. And, you know, interestingly, as I became a Christian, I began to listen to love songs thinking, well, that'd be a pretty good psalm to God. But, think, you know, there was a... There was a love song by, by, by Savage Garden. I think it was a 90s song. Uh, I knew I love you. Look at, look at how like, epic this is. Never mind like the torch songs from the 50s. Those are just embarrassing. But, 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 but this, I knew I loved you before I met you. I've been waiting all my life. There's just no rhyme or reason. Only the sense of completion. And in your eyes, I see the missing pieces I'm searching for. I think I've found my way home. I know that might sound more than a little crazy, but I believe I knew I loved you before I met you. I think I dreamed you into life. I knew I loved you before I met you. I've been waiting all my life. Holy smokes. Whoever the poor girl is that connects with that guy, he's gonna crush her with those expectations. But how do you then have romance? How do you have a healthy, connective relationship? How does this all, all go down? Is get the real living water. Know this real living water. Know this love that actually has been prepared for you since the beginning of time. Know this beautiful love that has been waiting for you for longer than you could ever recall. Know this love that so dearly wants to have intimacy at the most beautiful levels of your soul that you could have ever wanted. Know that this thirst is, 
is sated by nothing less than not your husband that you might call along, but this other guy, Jesus. Because even as he talks to her then, it'll be just a little while later where he will be not on that hill, but on another hill for her. And on, on, on that hill, he will quote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. But then interestingly, he says, I'm poured out like water. Bones are out of place. My heart turned to wax, melted in me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. He's able to cure her thirst because he takes her thirst. He's able to cure her emptiness because he takes her emptiness onto himself. He's able to cure her overwhelming loneliness because he appropriates it fully onto himself. On the cross. John 19 is the gospel that actually tells us that I thirst. I am thirsty. Jesus endures the worst of all thirst, the worst of all drought, the worst of all emptiness. Jesus endures the worst of all devastation of expectation. Why? So that you never will have to. So that you will only know Fulfillment, the quenching of your soul and never have to wonder, is this going to deliver me? Is this going to complete me? Is this going to make me the person I always meant to be? You'll never have to wonder that again because having been quenched by Christ, having been born again of water and spirit, having the living waters flow from within you like springs of water, John 7, 28, 29, having all of that, you will never ever have to walk another step on this earth, ever wondering again, who are you ultimately going to be? You are the beloved son of God's great, endearing brother, sister. You are the soulmate. You are the one true love. You are his buttercup. You complete him and the work that he has complete, what wanted to have completed. You complete his work. You are the great love, the epic love of Christ. And you are identified beautifully by that. Now, it's interesting, too, that this passage talks not just of thirst. You can go forward. if uh, I got it. Never mind. Uh, but also of hunger. And it's interesting that the disciples are off during this interchange, wrestling up food, trying to figure out things for Jesus. Uh, you know, Jesus was kind of working so hard all of the time that he barely had a chance to eat. In Mark 3, it says, Jesus entered a house, a crowd gathered so that his disciples weren't even able to eat. His family even came. So we got to take charge of him. He's out of his mind. He's not even eating. But you know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body. Life is more than food, body, more than clothes. And then he finishes it with, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All this other stuff will be worked out. 
for you. Jesus knew the satisfaction of his hunger, the satisfaction of his manly purpose, of his great reason for being, was to do the will of God. And they come to him and like, well, what do you mean food? What food do you have? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and not just do it, but finish it. Food, food. What, what, what do you mean the work of him who sent me? Look at the fields. Look at the harvest. Look at the work to be done. Look at the beautiful will of God to be the ones chosen by him to go in and gather that harvest. To joy, to have rejoicing sower and reaper together to kind of appreciate that, that, that idea of, of the end of the age of all things finally coming together. And maybe you're here and maybe you get it. And maybe you've been quenched and maybe you're not looking for the next deliverance. And maybe you're not running after the next romance. You're not running after the next, I don't know, uh, multi-marketing scheme. Because then you're going to finally have the time that you always needed and the income that you deserve from your very own home. Right? But, but maybe you're not running after all of those things. To get your identity. But maybe you're also not living with your soul nourished and fed by the purpose that comes with that. Like how cool is it that Jesus doesn't just save us, but he makes you significant. What if all he did was kind of save you through this nourishing water and then you don't mean anything? It's not quite the fullness of grace that is the Bible's picture. But you are transcendently meaningful. You have significance. You are not relegated to the cosmic playground never to be picked and never to do anything of, 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 of renown. Your life matters. When my brother and I were, were little kids, my grandmom would regale us with stories of the revolutions in Lithuania and, well, the overthrow of Lithuania by first the Nazis and then by Stalin and the communists, but also of her brother who went out into the fields with the partisans. Those were the, the way they called guerrilla warriors back then, or terrorists today. Uh, but, but the partisans, and, and he had the, the partisan group Torres, the, the, the bulls, right? He, he was the head of the bulls. And he had another nickname, uh, and he was the tiger, right? And his name was Felix's Gingus. I don't know how to spell it. But anyway, <laughs> Felix is Gingus, the tiger. And she would tell us the stories of the tiger and you know, kind of running out of the woods with the machine gun and you know, being able to disrupt the, the supply lines and really frustrate the, the, the communists, the, the Russians, and, and, and even of you know, ultimately his, his kind of capture and, and just horrific martyrdom in front of everybody, including her mom, who had to sit and watch her son be killed by the communists before her eyes. But, but yet, that seed of revolution, that spirit of revolution, never died from 1950 when he died until 41 years later when, when Lithuania was the first of the communist countries to rise up and to resist all that was going on in the Soviet Union and gain their, gain, gain their independence. And, and again, again, as my brother and I would sit there, we're like, ah, oh, this is so amazing. But then we would also think, like, what are we doing with our lives? Like, wow, these are, these are our family members. Not like some distant family member. That's grandmom's brother. Like, what, what in the world? What are we doing? I'm selling sugared water. 
You're running some sort of scam that I don't even know how to describe. <laughs> even though, interestingly, we kept those jobs, we realized that, no, we had a bigger purpose. We had food to eat that suddenly we didn't know about, but now we did. And when we tasted it, we realized, wow, what it is that I get to do. And so we all do. We have food to eat that gives us significance. We are the ones that are, are fed by purpose. Fed by a reason for being that is so far beyond what anybody could conjure up for themselves. If you were to say, hey, you know what, I, I, let's say we weren't in Christ. And, and, I, and I were to say to you, hey, uh, hey Marie, because she's the one most likely to write this. Uh, hey Marie, what would you say is maybe your, your mission statement? To save the world itself. Right? Even A. Marie wouldn't have said that. Closest person I know maybe that would have. But, but even Marie, she wouldn't kind of, you know, we'd all share our mission statements in some sort of a human resource workshop. And we'd all turn around and talk about having, you know, being a nice person and providing and have stability and white picket fence and whatever. Right? right? But nobody's going to be. I am going to be the vehicle for the salvation of the world. Right? Who would... Who would ever have such grandiose megalomaniac ideas that you would actually put out on paper? But that's been now written for you. That's your significance. That's how cool life is. But yes, we all have different day jobs. We have different things to do. But in the midst of all of that, you have nothing less than the greatest significance on earth. Man, how cool is Jesus? He doesn't just quench our thirst, but he satisfies a hunger. But let me give you one little caution here. If you are finding ways to have your hunger satisfied that are not the purposes of Christ, and what many people do is, is sadly, is you get involved in trivial matters. And you want to become the hero of something insignificant. Could be video games, could be some, some sort of other amusement that, that takes your mind away. Because you know that there's something in your soul that longs for significance. But virtual solutions not only don't actually solve the problem. They actually fool you into thinking that you've achieved something in your brain. And keep you from longing to get into the real game. There's a real game that God wants you in. Don't be satisfied by cotton candy satisfaction of a digital illusory nature that vanishes into nothingness as soon as the electricity stops flowing. You have something so much more. Get in the game. Know the, know the fullness of, of what it is that you should be satisfied by as you eat. Our thirst has been quenched. Our hunger has been satisfied. My goodness, what joy we have. And if you can go to the... Oh, there is no last slide, eh? <laughs> well, as my, my, my last bit O challenge here, in a life to the full challenge, let me, let me encourage you with this. If your hunger... I mean, if your thirst has been satisfied, then, then take this, this life to the full challenge. Get in the game. Join the work of the harvest. Join the significance. The fields are ripe. 
And join in rejoicing this week and this month as we get after knocking on doors and in a coordinated effort together in community aligning ourselves with that great purpose. This midweek, we are going to be back here. So we'll have a chance to kind of regroup, share good news, and and really get back to to the ideas of what we're doing for the harvest. So we'll be here for Tuesday this midweek. Uh, We also have a leaders meeting right after this. And one last thing is, well, we'll have one announcement for the last song. Um, the, the one last thing, too, is please pray for Dee. It's uh, Gwen's daughter. Uh, she's in the ICU unit right now over at Centera Lee. They're, they're asking for no visitors right now. It is a, a pretty intense time. But please, please, please pray for her. I'll pray for her as um, uh, Angela comes up to, to make a Women's Day announcement. And then Daniel will come up uh, to lead us in our final song. God, please. Uh, bless our, our, our sister Gwen as she is bedside right now with her daughter. Uh, give her great resolve and strength and, and really security in you. But also, God, please heal Dee. So many of us know her and love her so well. Please, God, heal her. Make it astounding to the doctors around her, uh, to her family. And, and through all of that, God, I pray that her eyes are opened to all it is that you really want to give her. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Come on, Angela.